Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community. Inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online. Found it in Melbourne, like that. From logos to websites to packaging and books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget, which is super helpful for entrepreneurs. And right now, our listeners can get a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. A contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for a long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized design advice over the phone. Their team of design experts has helped thousands of business owners. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. It's all simple. Just go over Head over to 99designs.com slash startupgrind for your upgrade and to sign up for a design consultation today. Fun fact, by the way, our founders Joel and Derek met on 99designs. There's a funny YouTube video promo for 99designs, an old school one, where we are literally in the garage. Check it out. It's worth a watch. Thanks, 99designs. Hey, you all. Chris Jonu, your buddy from Melbourne, Australia. Back at it again. Startup Grind. Dream Pushes. Draper Startup House, Startup Bootcamp, wow, doing a few things at the moment, but lucky I'm employed, love that. Um, we have a massive one today, you know, I this is, sometimes you just, you're in the moment, you're hearing this story and you're just blown away and I think I, I, think I did pause and just go, you know, you just have this, this moment where you're just overwhelmed, like just can't believe the... Uh, um, how inspirational some of these people's stories are. Uh, in this case, we had Caroline Casey, the story of which you may have heard. It's a famous TED Talk, 2.5 million views. Um, she's registered blind. Um, it's this crazy story where she didn't even know she was blind until she was 17. Her parents told her that she was, could see fine and thus went on this journey through life where she um, was unaware or, you know, um, blissfully unaware i suppose of of having any limitations so therefore she didn't she had a successful career and went on to accenture and and um but then later in life tried to hide this disability um it's a crazy story now she's a champion for you know disability inclusion she has a business called the valuable 500 she has massive companies on board and and ambassadors like you know sir richard branson paul Pullman, and um uh, companies like Bloomberg, Aston Martin, Microsoft, backing her and signing, um, signing the Valuable Five Hundred. If you have a, if you have over a thousand employees, uh, please sign this and you know put um, disability inclusion on the agenda. She has some interesting statistics around, um, you know, companies doing quite well in terms of diversity, but that that not including disability at all, um, and. Um, and that's her mission to change that, and she's doing a phenomenal job. I hope you enjoyed the chat, and um, yeah, see how you can help. Cheers. Well, welcome. Welcome to uh, the Startup Grind podcast. Thank you for uh, joining us. Um, 
can I go back and uh, just get a little bit of, of um, background from yourself? I usually start with a question: Was there a mother or father who was an entrepreneur? So I'm going. I'm going way back. <laughs> yeah, I am definitely the child of an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, um, who passed away actually three and a half years ago, um, was, was an entrepreneur, a black sheep, uh, an outlier, a renegade. <laughs> from a very young age. Um, I grew up in a family where, you know, he started his um, first business in 1979 when I was about eight years old. Um, and I remember very much uh, the beginning of that. And I worked with him um, throughout uh, throughout my childhood, as did my sister and my brother. And in the beginning of the age, he was a, an industrial silkscreen printer. And so a lot of the time the work would come home and we would be doing it all on the dining room floor. Uh, Mum pushing up the buggy of my brother, trying to bring him food and sandwiches. We did it through a recession in the 80s here in Ireland. I worked on his quality assurance um, on his factory floor. Then I worked in his art room. So, yeah, I definitely have an entrepreneur father. I think my mum is very entrepreneurial too, but it was it was more sort of formal with my father and um, I was always creating and starting little enterprises and businesses right throughout my childhood, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, can, it shows can you, me. Can you explain that business to me? So, you're, you're, you're printing on, like, what, um, metal and stuff? What, 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 what That's ex- yeah, gosh, thank you. You know, yeah. So, he started industrial, uh, industrial print uh, in Dublin in 1979. And it's exactly as you said. It started about printing on metals. Mm-hmm. And then it was it was very unusual printing. So it was on metals and plastics. Um, it was actually printing electricity through gold and um, metals. It was extraordinary. Um, and I didn't realize because you don't when you're a child, right? You don't see um, how innovative my father was. And he he actually didn't finish school um, to his parents' absolute disgust. He didn't go to university. He wa- he went traveling. He his <laughs> first job. He, he was sweeping the floors of Hallmark cards mm-hmm. and was watching how printing was done and was really intrigued about, well, how do you print on things that are, is not paper? And he self-taught. I mean, he's an, he had an engineering mind and taught himself everything from the very beginning. He was just fascinated about how you could scale printing on metal. And that's what he did. Incredible. And so, yeah, so you were, this is kind of surrounded with this uh, at an early age. And then you mentioned that, um, you know, you had your own little entrepreneurial projects. Was this kind of lemonade stand <laughs> stuff? What was what was it? The hustle at the young age. Uh, well, that was a few hustles. Um, yes, I definitely was a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is great to talk about this stuff. I forget it. Um, from a young age, the very first thing I remember was um, my cousin. Um, she lived out in Wicklow, which is out in the country, just outside Dublin, and they had like an old like um, really old pony, like on a farm. Um, and there were all of these other like pony clubs. I've never, I didn't, I wasn't part of it, but my cousin was. And um, they couldn't afford to have jumps. So we, her name was Ruth and I'm called Caroline. And so what we used to do is go out to the forest, <laughs> jump down these small trees. Oh God, please don't ask. And then sort of um, treat them and paint them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we called them Rukal jumps. So they were jumps for, for horse jumps and paint them. We picked up all old paints that had, you know, half 
tins and used tins of paint and sold our Rucal jumps for people who couldn't afford posh jumps. Um, and then I, um, when I was 17, I was looking for more money and I was quite a good copy drawer. So I used to paint um, nursery walls or children's bedrooms. Um, I qualified as a masseuse after I was in Australia um, when I was 22. Um, and I paid my way through business school doing that. And, and then I also became a landscape gardener. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, really. I've, I've done it all. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And then, um, and a little bit of Australia there. That's great. Um, and and then, um, so you kind of had you kind of grow up, and you've got this, you know, this kind of entrepreneurial mindset. This like a nat- natural thing. You know, I'm always curious to see. You know, I'll, I'll ask it. I'll ask the question anyway. Uh, you know, are hustlers born or you know made? In your opinion? Hmm. See, I. I- Oh, this nature-nurture argument is so interesting, isn't it? Um, so I think in my case, both born and both made, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So there's no doubt I'm their eldest. So that's another thing I think is important. Um, I also need to say, and in, in the reason I would say born and made is um, there was always that. I was his eldest, I was, I was working with him. I saw, you know, about, you know, I, I was there there when the business was being run I had that sort of curiosity um I was brought up to if there's a problem get you know you don't accept a problem you get around it you find a solution so that was always in our family really but the main element of it was um my mom was very sick uh, uh, when I was younger um and I think the grit and resilience that, that um, we have as children and particularly in the role as the eldest I have to take on running the house quite young um, and so that, there was a, a combination of factors that I think in the end of the day, no matter what I would have done, I would have ended up working for myself. But the reason that I began to work for myself and began this career as a social entrepreneur um, was because I kept coming up against obstacles. And I just was like, I've got to find a solution for this. It didn't occur to me to think about why the problems existed. It was I've just got to try and find a solution um, and one part of my personality is if there's a problem, I'll fix it. I'd be known as a fixer, um, as a negotiator, somebody who likes to to the that things are right. And, and I think I have the disease to please. Uh, maybe I'm a recovering person now as I get older. Yeah. So a combination of all those factors. Yeah. That's yeah, a I like very that. long answer to your question. No, Sorry. It's fantastic. We've got time. Um, so, you yeah, know, I like that. You know, it's just, you know, um, Failure is not an option. No, I think, um, and I warn, I do, I have a warning about this. So, failure is not an option is what I grew up with, and I think, I think many of us as entrepreneurs can relate to this. We're exceptionally hard, to, um, and I think one of the things that I'm loving as I'm now 48 years old and I own that is I, um, I remember an entrepreneur saying to me, um, one of my mentors about 10 years ago. Caroline, 80% is good enough. Enough, And I was like, oh, that is an absolute, how could you say that? That's a crime. 80% is never good enough. Like, there's no such thing as good enough. Um, and I, I brutalized myself in the work, pushing myself so hard. And now as a 48-year-old entrepreneur on my fourth entrepreneurial adventure, I could say, yeah, I, I've really learned that. Um, that first of all, it is not perfectionism. Actually, perfectionism can drive you to fail. 
failure is actually a way I don't see failure in the same way as I would have before. And mm-hmm. um, I do see it now as a way of trying to flex or pivot or learn. What I don't accept is no. Right. I don't accept no. I find another way. So I, I have a very different relationship to failure now. I don't see failure as failure. I see it as something else. And I know that's cliched and I apologize for the cliche. But cliches are reasons. No, uh, no. They're, they exist for a reason. Um, but no, I don't take no for an answer. I, If I really believe in what I'm doing, I don't take no for an answer. I have to try and find a different way to help other people understand it. I have to try and maybe change the direction. But I And I think 20 years doing this work and the work I'm doing right now, if you look back on my 20 years, it is 20 years with the same uh, intention, with the same focus, with the same belief. I've maybe had to do it differently. I've had to fail. I've had success and failure equally. But I have but I have never taken no for an answer. Yeah, or, or given up, I suppose. I think it's I think what entrepreneurship yeah. teaches you is it's okay to fail, but you're just you're just making these like, you know, small fail failures, right? Are they kind of calculated um, you know, that you know that, that it's not gonna, you know, sink the ship or um it's not all in. There's these little bets that you take. I think that's what at least entrepreneurship's kind of taught me that um take the risk but be kind of calculated about it and then um, if it doesn't work, you can recover and just kind of, yeah pivot right and then um, but never give up on the on the on the on the dream unless unless you run out of the cash because that means uh, well I've run out of cash because I don't know about you but I have I've had to close down a company mm-hmm. and it absolutely broke it, it it broke my heart yeah and that is to me. It, it, it talks to exactly what you're saying is, but it didn't break. This is so cliche again. It, it didn't break the dream. Yeah. And one lesson I learned from that is I should have, having closed down that particular initiative, I should have given myself more space before starting again. Yeah. And I think that's something I don't know. Do you do you feel this? The more we grow the more we learn the difference about um, when it's time to rest and when it's time to do. The, the difference between not giving up and pushing through the, the darkest hours before dawn. The difference yeah. between being positive and then not looking down the road. You know, there's there's a fine line. Um, so I've definitely learned that if the purpose is in there, if the, if the ambition is in there, if the dream is in there, you never give up on that. Sometimes you've got to let things go and sometimes you've got to admit defeat and you've got to give yourself some time to rest and heal. And my greatest mistake in the last five years was I started up too soon, too quick. And I didn't allow the the processing of what had happened. Now, it's turned out it's brilliant. Look where we are now and it's phenomenal. But I think I probably could have got there better, faster, quicker, quicker, more healthily if I had given myself more of a break. Yeah, I mean, it's just learning to just work on your own schedule and not kind of give in to, you know, the demands of everyone else's, I suppose. Um, but look, look, we've got um, – we're not, we're not giving the audience much context here and it's my fault because I'm just enjoying the conversation. So can we – let's go back to, um, if you don't mind, what was the education and how did you get kind of started on this entrepreneurial journey? And then, um, yeah, feel free to just, you know – um, tell you know, take as long as you as you like on 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 each of those points. Well, first of all, um, I 
I, I'm an over talker. So maybe this is a good thing to um, <laughs> explain how I got, in, got into entrepreneurship, aside from my landscape gardening, massaging and <laughs> cartoon drawing. Um, at 28 years old, I was uh, um, working for Accenture. Um, management consultancy firm. Um, I had um, gone after my days of a landscape gardener and doing a, an undergraduate in arts. Um, I had gone to business school and um, I got uh, in Ireland the job mo- most people really wanted at the time was to work with, you know, those big organisations like the Accentures, the PWCs and blah, blah, blah. And um, the reason I... I went down that track is I was at the time holding and hiding a secret and I it was very much about why I I was sort of following the herd if that makes a difference because everybody at that time you know being successful was to get one of these great jobs and this was a great job Um, and even though I was like a renegade and hippie and I was all of those things I you know I got this job in Accenture um, I used to wear Doc, Doc Martens under my big flary, um, you know, suits. I mean, I was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the secret I was holding at the time was that I actually um, have a disability. I am registered blind. I have a rare condition called ocular albinism. Um, and for anybody that, that, that sounds very strange is um, for, for people who have albinism there, we have very white hair and very white skin. Um, ocular albinism. My my hair isn't as white, or, uh, or skin isn't as white, but the I have the same very low vision. Um, so I actually don't look visually impaired or register blind. I just look like a pale Irish girl. Um, and I had gone into Accenture, and I never told them about my condition because I was so concerned that I might not get the chance mm-hmm. that everybody else would. Um, so um, and then just sorry, to backtrack I... on that, um, I discovered. Um, I about my condition by accident when I was 17 years old, when I went um, to go to the police station to get my provisional driving license. Yes. Um, And my provisional driving license was something I really wanted. I really wanted to race cars and motorbikes. It was my absolute dream in the world. I wanted to have dreams of freedom. I wanted to be a cowgirl. I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book. I wanted to race cars and motorbikes. I had all these incredible dreams of freedom, which actually rolls into entrepreneurship as well. And it was my father who gave me my driving lesson. Mm -hmm. So let me explain why. um, Is How did I not know and why did my father give me a driving lesson? Well, I was born with this condition and my parents determined that no child of theirs would be limited by a label of disability. They made a decision to bring me up as a sighted child to see how far I could go without the label, without the limitation. And they would build expectation into me, build ambition into me. Um, And I went to a normal school. I can only see two feet. If you put a pair of glasses on and you put Vaseline or cream in front of them, that's what my vision is like. And I had absolutely no idea that I was different to any other child. So when I found out at 17 that I had this condition, as you can imagine, a 17-year-old, I was like, what? I just did not want it. I didn't want to have a disability. I wanted to have a big life. And and that's how I've been brought up. So I hid it. And from the age of 17 to the age of 28 in Accenture, I told nobody. 
So, can so that I- is my that's my education journey to 28, and it was at 28, um, which is 20 years ago last year. I was in Accenture um, nearly two years, and I buckled under the pressure of trying to be perfect, um, of trying to continue to pretend that I could see when I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been brought up to be, you know, tenacious and gritty and not ask for help. And while that served me to get to there, unfortunately, um, that strategy no longer was working because I damaged my eyes further by not asking for help and I had to come out of the closet. So when I was 28 years old, um, in March of uh, 2000, I came out of the closet to Accenture and told them they had, (laughs) without knowing, employed a registered blind person. So this is crazy. So this... um... So this wasn't like a progressive thing. This is something that you just kind of always had, but you never, never, never knew it as a disadvantage because you never, it's not the way you you would, you know, taught to view the world, right? Which is, um, is did, am I getting that right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and, so um, this nature versus nurture that you, that you refer to about entrepreneurship, um, I think if you you hear that story, a child born with a disability, parents decided that they would not limit it by a label, brought up as sighted, learned, learned how to hustle. You know, Chris, I learned how to hustle. I had to find solutions for everything because every time I fell, I couldn't see a blackboard. I couldn't hit a ball. I, I couldn't see my friends and I didn't know that I couldn't. And if I come home crying when I was a kid, my mom and dad were like, they wouldn't you know, make excuses. It was like, go out and find a solution, go out and find a solution, you know, pull yourself up, put your shoulders back, you know, that's the way it is. And it, you know, it was tough, but they did it lovingly. Then my mom is sick. So I take over a family. So you can hear that that entrepreneurship and that finding solutions was a nurture. Um, and it didn't get worse. The only time that my site got bad was when I was working in Accenture on a computer without using all of the aids that you can use as a visually impaired person. And I damaged my vision. And therefore, I had to come out of the closet that I couldn't hold the secret anymore because my sight had depleted so much that I had headaches in my head that I started to lose my confidence, that I stopped being funny. You know, all of those years of those 11 years, I kept trying to deflect and distract and not let you see because all I wanted was to belong like anybody else. And I was fearful that if I told you about my site that I wouldn't belong, not yeah. to be accepted. I wanted to belong. I wanted to be one of the gang, even though I'm actually a total maverick. It's a funny thing. I'm, I'm a contradiction. <laughs> so, yeah. Incredible. And then, and then, and then, you know, was it this experience um, that kind of just took you on a new path or just, was that, was that kind of um, coming out, I suppose, you know, freedom to you how did it like um you know propel you into this you know the all the accomplishments that followed i suppose and can you yeah can you just run through that story you know yeah yeah um i have a very unusual the birth of on uh of this entrepreneur like her like for me the real birth came through crisis um a real the rock and the hard place yeah. um through real pain of not knowing who I was, 
um, of who was I going to be if I was going to be truthfully owning my identity, part of my identity. It's not my identity. I'm not defined by my disability, but if I had to own that, who was I going to be? Um, I was scared. Um, people wouldn't have seen it on the outside because I would never let you see that I was scared. Um, I would never let see some, somebody see me crying because I was so frustrated that I didn't understand. Um, so the me becoming an entrepreneur was born out of this beautiful Leonard Cohen, uh, Cohen quote. I'm a, I was and am still a massive Leonard Cohen fan. Um, he, he would say, forget your perfect offering. Um, it's the cracks where the light gets in. And it was my through my floor, or through my crack or through my heart plate, the light got in. And that's where the entrepreneurship got in, because when I came out of the closet in Accenture, they sent me to an eye specialist. And the eye specialist basically was like, what is this about? Like, what are you doing? Why are you hiding that you're visually impaired? You, you are registered blind. Like, What is this? Why are you doing this? And he kind of had a conversation with me. He didn't test my eyes. He was really clear. He's just like, you know, this is about self-acceptance. This is not about your vision. Mm -hmm. And he asked me what I wanted to be when I was a kid. And he said, like, are you living the life that you wanted? And I was like, I wasn't prepared for it. Like, I'd never done therapy at the time. And I certainly wasn't prepared for it then. And, <laughs> and he said to me, like, what, do you want to, what did you want to be when you were little? And, you know, I didn't tell him that I wanted to race cars and motorbikes because I was so ashamed at this point. Um, but as I left his office, he called me back and he just said, and look, young lady, I think it was probably the last time I was called young lady. Yeah, look, young lady, my, my sense is you, you've got something else to do in your in your life. I, I just think there's something else that you have to do. And it was that day in March, you know, now 20 years ago, I went for a run along a beach. It's a well-known story. I, did, I spoke about it when I did a TED talk and I fell on a rock and it was when I fell on that rock that my whole world collapsed um, and I remember thinking if my father could only see me now, he would kick my butt and say, get off that rock and I was like, how am I going to get off the rock and the conversation with the doctor went through my head, what did I want to be when I was little and one of those dreams seems like the most sensible thing to do which was to become Mowgli from the Jungle Book um, <laughs> and take some time off work, let my eyes recover. And um, I made that extraordinary, magical, it nearly is like a Disney life moment decision on this rock in Dublin in the rain. And um, eight months later, eight months later, I fulfilled that dream. And how I became Mowgli from the Jungle Book is I went across southern India on the back of an elephant. I trained as an elephant handler. <laughs> and um, I'm the only, I believe at the time, certainly was the only Western woman to become an elephant handler or mahout. Um, and I came to terms with the, the global scale of the disability inequality crisis, which I was part of because I had discriminated against disability, but not only my own. And as you can imagine, an Irish albino woman Visually impaired in Indian elephant caught me the attention. <laughs> National Geographic wants to do a film. And then I started to go, oh, my gosh, I have a platform. How could I help change the, the inequality crisis around disability? That actually broke my heart. Yeah. And um, I had real, I think, real shame um, in not owning my own disability, but then also in contributing to the problem. And I think this is where entrepreneurship comes from. 
you know, we talk about business entrepreneurship, they see a gap in the market and they fill that with a product or a service or an offering. I saw a gap in the market that there was an inequality crisis and disability. And I didn't see that business, which I believe is one of the fundamental forces for change and could absolutely be part of ending the inequality crisis if business valued people with disabilities and their families across their supply chain. Well, if we could do that, we could monumentally change the way disability was seen and um, perceived in the world. And that is what, that's how I began it. I, I began my thinking on an elephant Amazing. <laughs> 20 years ago. Amazing. Well, I think, you know, look, just, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think you can be so hard on yourself. It sounded like you were still trying to, um, uh, you know, find yourself at that point. Yeah. Um, and that's 20 years ago. Um, and I would say, I don't know what age you are, um, but I, I do know there's a thing called age and stage that I used to hear about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I am a much better entrepreneur now yeah. uh, and a much better leader, I hope, now because I am, uh, I am more accepting of myself now um, that I have done work on myself. I really believe to be a good entrepreneur, you really have to, to know yourself, do your shit, work out your shit, mm -hmm. why you do what you do, um, do your healing. Um, yeah. And I would say the last 20 years of my life have been not only an extraordinary journey as an entrepreneur, but also a personal journey. So when I sit here as you know, the founder of the Valuable 500, and the reason I believe it has been so successful, um, very tough, I will say, um, because, you know, disability is still the one that's left on the side of business. But I think I, I have become a more mature and more grown up woman. I like myself now. I never, ever thought I could say I would like myself. Um, I forgive myself. Um, so when I work now as an entrepreneur, I think I'm working more as a more balanced person mm -hmm. um, and I'm not annihilating myself. Um, and I think that's really good. I'm much more grounded. Yeah. Sounds good. I mean, um, just, you know, um, I want, obviously I'm going to want to dig deep with, with the valuable, valuable 500, but you know, obviously there's no, there's no elephants in your, um, in your, in your, uh, bio that I got. So I'm loving all of this and, um, just such an incredible gift from your parents. I mean, I don't want to like get it to where we're both crying here, but um, the conversation that you must, must must have had around, you know, I don't know. I, I won't. I won't go. I won't go go too far into it. But um, yeah, I don't know. Well, no, I you can, and I think the, the truth of it is, I, I want to be very careful that a lot of people that hear hear. My story, and they think it's inspirational. It really isn't an inspirational story. Um, I think it was a family trying to do the very best they could with what they had, you yeah. know. And what I think my parents, um, you know, they would admit that they were frightened. Um, you know, and I, this, the joke about it all is, is that my dad was a massive Johnny Cash fan. And yeah. he loved the song A Boy Named Sue. 
And I think people should go and listen to a boy named Sue. And now then you'll understand why yeah. my dad led this I, this human experiment to bring me upside because it's true. Yeah. He thought that the world is unfair and it's tough. And if he overprotected me, um, I wouldn't have half a chance. And so in a way, and mum was completely supportive and she's very, my mum is incredibly gutsy woman as well. Um, so I think they definitely gave me the best start. But on the other side of it, there was, I, there was a negative yeah. to it. I, get what I didn't saying. know how to ask for help, Chris. Yeah. And that's yeah. also not good. No. But then on the last part of it, which I think is the best part of all of this story, is the Valuable 500 was born um, out of the last message of my father before he died. Mm. Um, because dad, you know, it's a real contradiction, but dad really be- believes that or believes that, you know, the only thing that we, we ever can do is to be ourselves. And he used to say, be yourself and bleep the bleeps. OK, so fill in the gaps there. Yeah. Um, and it was like, you know, you've got to live your life. The only thing that you can do well is with honour to live your life and try not hurt other people and don't judge other people and be honest and integrity. I mean, that was all down our family. And listen to that. However, they brought me up in a lie, which I think is hilarious. But yeah. five days before he died... Um, he, you know, he, he, he knew that I had always wanted to do this big global campaign, um, with business leadership and disability. And he's, he, I always remember he, he, he was six foot six, huge man and, um, was very strong. He died strong and, uh, he pulled, pulled me in really hard to him. And he said, what are you waiting for? What did I teach you? I taught you to be yourself. Yeah. And he said, I certainly didn't teach you to run away. Hmm. I said, but dad, look, I'm, I've, look, let somebody else do it. Who am I to do this? And he said, and who are you not to? And um, I'll be honest, you know, it was, I was in my mid forties and I thought, well, look, somebody younger, better, brighter should do this global campaign. Like, why me? And actually it was his death. So once again, actually the next spurge of my entrepreneurship was born out of pain and born out of grief. So my greatest um, achievements or my greatest energy for entrepreneurship has always come from from grief or pain or challenge or struggle. And it was through his death that I found the courage. Uh, amazing. I mean, I just, um, I'm blown away. And, and like, so, and I get what you're saying. It is kind of a, you know, um, um, there wasn't the opportunity to, I guess, have the choice. When I, when I first hear it, I'm just kind of thinking as a parent and going like I imagine, um, you know, in my mind, um, you know, your father and mother probably going away and crying when they're, they're trying to essentially, you know, prop up something that, you know, to your point, you know, should have just there should have been some truth about it all. But, you know, I guess, and maybe this is an outside perspective, you know, looking, you know, looking in and, um, but it also gave you the, you know, the, you know, the skills, the strength, the courage to, you know, take on this challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It it gave me grit, um, and realism and, um, a sense of humor. Um, I also think we have great empathy in our family. 
Uh, we've real empathy. We very rarely judge people. Uh, I think that's something I'm very proud of, of all of us. Um, and you know what? I, I know that my parents have had criticism from what they did. But if you see me now and you see my sister, and my brother, I think I think we're I think we're as good as any other family. Um, yeah, I'm very proud of us. And, and I watched my sister, who's also visually impaired. They brought my sister up actually sighted. So, you know, my they brought me up um, sighted as well. But it, it, my Hillary knew that she had a condition. I didn't. And they made a decision for their eldest, for me, one way. And they made a decision for my sister another. So I grew up with a visually impaired sister, looking at my sister, you know, seeing what it was like to be visually impaired and not having any idea that I was the same. No oh, idea. Unbelievable. And it is, it is an incredible story. Yeah. So can we can we go through now? And I want to just, you know, um, we're not getting off this call without you leaving happy. Right. Um, and um, so I want, can you just go through some of the, you know, the, 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 the idea to start, you know, whether it was on the elephant or whatever to trying and go back and help people, you know, empower people um, and how this, you know, has, has turned into something, you know, so big and the TD, you know, the Ted talk and Richard Branson and, and all, go, can you just give me the, the journey here? Post, post elephant. Well, um, yeah. Okay. So the journey post obviously we did the elephant trip, came home. Um, I had met one of Ireland's most influential business leaders, a, the man who I owe everything to. He was my first follower, Dermot Desmond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to Dermot, Dermot, why doesn't business want to deal with the 15% of our global population who have a lived experience of disability? Why? Um, and, uh, he was like, because you need to talk to the leaders. And that has been my work from the very beginning. Number one, business is the most powerful force on the planet. If business includes society includes, if business leaves out people with disabilities, society will leave out people with disabilities. Uh, I, I often have said inclusive business creates inclusive societies. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not believe that disability, the, the crisis that exists around disability, which is huge, like 90% of children with disability don't get into a classroom, 50% more likely to experience poverty if you have a disability, 50% less likely to get a job. Um, you know, there, a very well-known Australian activist was, uh, she she would say that 50%, we, we design more clothes for dogs than we do for people with disabilities. You know, disability has always been on the sideline of business. And I think that's because business have seen there has been no value um, uh, you know, that that disability is about medical models and charity and weakness. Mm-hmm. And so from the very outset, when I met this man, Dermot Desmond, I said, look, honestly, people with disabilities and their families, um, we are customers and talent and suppliers and members of the community. Like, surely if we can, if we can see the issue of gender equality or LGBTQ or planet, why are we not talking about disability? And he said, well, look, if you want to change business systems, you need to go to the top of business and that's business leaders. And that is what I went out to do. And from the moment that I started, number one was to get to leaders. Number two was to reframe disability um, as a business opportunity, an opportunity for growth and innovation and brand differentiation and talent acquisition and retention to create a new market model on disability. Um, 
The third thing, um, you know, aside from the leaders and creating that new sort of narrative was to start identifying best practice that exists in the business world. So it could be um, emulated or and role models. And so that's kind of where I started from the very beginning. Now, the, the connection to entrepreneurship is really important here. My father was the first Irish company to get the ISO, Quality Assurance Mark. Yep, and another one. I was really interested in this because I was working in his business at the time. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, how about we get the ISO for disability? Like disability best practice. Um, you know, like, let's not let, let this not be about charity or CSO. Let, let this be about business. And so in Ireland, we set up the very first of its kind, like this ISO for disability best practice. And we called it the Ability Awards. And it was hugely successful. And the reason it was very successful is because I insisted that the CEO was involved in the process, that um, they they were interviewed in it, that they would run um, their learnings right throughout their business. So they would change the system of their business. Now, it was so successful in Ireland. Um, it was bought over then by Telefonica, which was at the time the second biggest um, global Spain. telecommunications company in the world. And so we, we you know, franchised it to Spain. Like, amazing. Um, and then I was, you know, then we could start seeing that people were like, gosh, this is brilliant. And the world wanted me to start, you know, bringing this everywhere around the world because it was a model and it worked. And by the way, I probably could have made an awful lot of money and good. But you know what I was worried about is that it wasn't scaling quickly enough, mm. that the return on investment for effort wasn't, it just wasn't, I, I couldn't see the improvement, I couldn't see the acceleration of change quickly enough. Yeah. And it was too expensive, honestly. Um, and I just was like, no, there has to be a better way. And then I did my TED talk with Cheryl Sandberg. Um, she was on stage in 2010. And I watched her talking about leaning in. And I'm like, this is so interesting. Here is a CEO or COO of a brand on platform and after she started to talk about leaning in, though the world had been talking about gender equality, there was this surge of interest. And I'm like, I want to see that happen for disability. Mm -hmm. So I was just w trying to wait and watch for the right moment to see if we could do something on the same model of getting really strong and influential business leaders to do what Cheryl had done for gender equality or what Al Gore had done for the, the, the green movement. And it was, um, it was after dad died that I went, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to sit around and wait anymore because I will regret it. And so I decided to um, launch the valuable 500. And essentially what that was, was taking nearly 17 years of lived experience and saying, okay, I know that business listens to data I know that business listens to leaders mm -hmm. and I know that business listens to really good campaigning. And so what we did, we did some research with EY um, because they love the data. And we identified that only 56% of our global boards, so the boards of the companies, had had a conversation about disability. 7% uh, of our, our business leaders had a lived experience of disability, but four out of five of them were hiding it like I had hidden mine. Incredible. And that to me was like, woohoo, there's the information, there's the data. Um, and so what we did was we went, okay, 
We also did a piece of data that said that 90% of the companies in the world claimed to be passionate about inclusion, and yet only 4% talked about disability. And I'm like, that is bullshit. That's an inclusion delusion. And so with those three pieces of research, armed with Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever as our chairperson, with uh, Omnicom and Virgin Media, we launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos in um, 2019, the Valuable 500. And its intention is to get 500 of the world's most influential CEOs to have a, uh, to make a commitment at board level, at, at leadership level um, around disability and to communicate it externally to the world and internally to the business. And that would create a tipping point for change. And that is what we have done. And against all the odds, everybody told me I was crazy. You have no idea what you're doing. You know, you, you, we haven't got gender right yet. We haven't got um, race right yet. We haven't got LGBT. What are you talking about? Disability. It's on the sidelines. We, we It's too much. You're going to over overwhelm the system. And I was like, no, I know that we can do this if we've got leadership. And we have proved that we can. That's incredible. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, so you went small. You went small at Davos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fantastic. Um, and so, like, um, start this global movement. You got some, 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 the, all the heavy hitters on board, um, but no stopping, right? You're still. Um, well, no, no stopping. And, you know, there was, remember, I was, let's go back to don't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. So I was told, no, you would not be not be able to get the main stage of the World Economic Forum in Davos. No, you can't. No, you will not be able to get Paul Pullman. No, you, there is no chance on earth that you're going to be able to get 500 CEOs, CEOs signatures. Like we're asking for the signature of their CEO and then a written commitment that goes onto our website that we validate and check. I was told, no, 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 no. And no, you will not be able to raise money for it. So I'll tell you what I did. I remortgaged our home. I swear to God, I didn't have enough money. I remortgaged our home. I rode across Colombia on a horse <laughs> to find Paul Pullman so I could speak at One Young, One Young World, mm -hmm. who are also our partners. I found Paul Pullman and he said, you're going to do this. And we went back to Davos this year and we had 240 CEOs and their companies. And by the time we left Davos, we had 250. Since Corona, we've, we have now, now actually, as I'm speaking to you, we have literally just got another massive brand. I'm just watching it come through on my phone, my phone, come in. We are over 50% there. Okay. So it is, we are talking about 46 countries, 24 industries. You know, we're talking about 10 million employees, 4 trillion in, in revenue. I mean, it's incredible. And so the coronavirus for us, what is really scares me, Chris, yeah. except I'm not scared anymore, is people are going, there's, I'm starting to see the unfortunate historic framing of disability again, again about disability being vulnerable, the survival of the fittest. And, and I'm like, no. No, guys, this is, a, this is the greatest opportunity. We will build this community of 500 CEOs and then we set them the task, a CEO movement to drive system change, to bake, bake in 
right from the redesign of our business system, which is going to happen after Corona, is making sure that disability is baked in from the beginning. And now, now we have the CEO, so there's no reason we can't. So once, once again, crisis has created opportunity. Absolutely. And I think that is, Absolutely. it's incredible. It's incredible where entrepreneurship finds its way through crisis. And I think that's what, what, what is the key thing in crisis, whether you're a social entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, somehow entrepreneurs nearly thrive on chaos or thrive on crisis. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud. Like, like, I'm so proud of what we're going to do. But I, you know, when the coronavirus came, it was like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do this? Because most of the ways that I would have recruited our CEOs were at events or mm-hmm. whatever. And, and because it's an opportunity for business now and it's an opportunity for us in redesigning our business system that we need leave no one behind. We are one race, all interconnected. We should never have a hierarchy of exclusion and inclusion. Never. We are all equal. We are all equal. And I think that's the greatest chance we have now to drive the system change. I love it. Yeah, I wish... Um... Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had this, you know, had you in front of an audience now, so we could, you know, we could get some applause along the way sometimes. But um, I think what you have probably working for you is in probably a week or two, when when all the uh, the CEOs are finished, you know, watching all the Netflix they can, you might you know might be be able to grab these some of these people a little bit easier at home. Fingers crossed. Well, I hope so. And I, Australia is a country we've been really, really wanting to um, engage with mm-hmm. um, so we we originally were going to close the valuable 500 in September of this year on General Assembly but we're because of, of everything that's happening actually we're going to close it at Davos next year um, and I had hoped to come to Australia I was due to come to Australia uh, yeah. to um, get all of you because I, can I just tell you you've got some brilliant Australian brand brands and brilliant Australian CEOs um, and we were due to come to come down and meet them and um unfortunately or i just like we don't know when that's ever going to happen but but when we said globally i want to be really clear we meant globally mm-hmm. um and i really want to to any of your listeners to en- encourage them if they are working in a company and um, that is over a thousand employees um please try and get them to get in touch with us through the valuable 500 because we have a handful of australian Australian companies, but we really want to get more. Um, we have, we just know there's some great practice going on. Uh, I've been in Australia many, many times, um, and I'm just very sad that I won't get get to come come to you in April, um, but maybe in December. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, like well, there's a lot, and I am so surprised that we're having companies come in as we speak. As I said this morning, because I think this is something that companies are starting to see that collectively, as a race. We have understood what exclusion is, right? That's number one. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we have also understood that we can be innovative, that we can be flexible about how we work. So if we can connect inclusive people with disabilities. So there's, there's great opportunity. And I think the very forward thinking companies are like, oh, my God, yeah, we need to be part of this group so we can be ahead of the game because the voice of people with disabilities is much louder than it ever was before. It's a market worth a trillion. You know, it's one in seven of us. It's 15% of our global population. And at a time of hyper competition and need for growth and crisis, you do not want to be leaving this market behind. And I think the very forward thinking companies are seeing that now and that disability inclusion will be part of their recovery. 
Absolutely. Well, the good news is that we're, you know, we're global and um, we're in 600 cities. So, um, you know, I'm hoping a lot of people are hearing the message um, through the global podcast. They just got a crazy Australian guy to host it. That's all. But we're global. We can help. Well, everywhere. yes, that's true. I'm sorry. I just because I'm talking to you in Australia. Well, all no. of you in 600 cities, yes. I, I'm, I'm not discriminating. <laughs> I promise you I'm not. Um, and to be honest with you, even with YPO, I was talking to YPO group when I was in Davos. I actually think the entrepreneurs like myself are those that are seeing the opportunities. So all that we're asking for any company is just as long as you have a thousand employees all around the world, we don't care. But it's, you know, I often think this, what we would say is the medium size or the smaller organizations is where we see the greatest intent. Mind you, we've got organizations like the Salesforce, the Microsoft, the Accentures, the big ones. And we really do have Jaguar Land Rover. We've got airlines. But we do, my favorite ones are, to be honest, it's between the one and 3,000. That's Mm -hmm. because they really, they embed it quickly and they see the business opportunity fast. They move fast. Great. Well, I hope I, I hope we I hope we can help. You know, I hope. Um, um, yeah. Uh, so, is it what what what's what's the call to action here? What's the what's the um, how do we find how do we find you and you know the old all the all the usual stuff? How can we help? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, you have helped. Um, thank you for having me talk for so long. Um, and I realised I'm out of practice of talking on in my bedroom. But anyway, first off is you can go to um, www.thevaluable500.com. Everything is on our website. Um, The second thing is if you want to laugh or a giggle, and I'm all up for that, um, uh, you can go onto YouTube um, and see our film called Hashtag Diverse-ish, which won a can a lion. And that is really talking about us trying to end this a la carte inclusion uh, agenda, and I think it's a two-minute film, and it'll make you laugh. Please go on and look at that. And um, you'll find us on social media, um, either on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever, and that's the uh, valuable five hundred. And um, me, uh, you can. I'm really rubbish on social media for a campaigner. That's not good. But uh, you'll find me, Caroline Casey. Uh, the background story, if I haven't told it enough, is on Ted. But mostly we're a tiny team of six people with 85 organizations we're working with around the world. Um, And we'd love to hear from you because I really believe that actually this is the best time that funnily that what the most vulnerable or perceived vulnerable people in this world can be part of a business recovery and a differentiation. And we're here to help. And what we're saying to any company is you do not need to be doing anything regardless of where you are in this journey whether you're beginning, scaling or leading, please come into this valuable 500 so that together we can create a movement where inclusion means inclusion for all. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline. Um, appreciate your time tonight and, um, um, yeah, hope we get some, hope we get a good result for you and, um, yeah, keep on keeping on. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.